0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons, and to be honest, my goal is to have at least 10% or just 1 in 10 of our regular listeners supporting the show, and we have ways to go until we reach that point. So if you've been finding our work valuable and you're able to support the show starting at just $2 per month, like a simple morning's cup of tea, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. And thank you so much if you're already a supporter of the show.
1: You can look at, say, 10 carbon neutral announcements and find 10 different definitions of what carbon neutrality is. That's one of the reasons why we launched the platform and why we launched the climate neutral certified label, because we think that there needs to be more standardization.
0: There are quite a few labels for conscious consumers to look out for today, like organic, fair trade, and so forth. But seeing the importance of decarbonizing our economy Austin Whitman helped to start and currently acts as the CEO of Climate Neutral, which is a new platform helping brands to measure, reduce and offset their entire carbon footprint in a comprehensive manner. And by doing so, brands that work with them and meet their standards can then attain their climate neutral certification. It's a pretty new label, but you can start to keep an eye out for it as well. But how trustworthy is it when companies announce that they're going carbon neutral or that they are carbon neutral? And what questions can we ask to see if they might just be greenwashing or if they're actually taking it seriously? And how does a voluntary market-based method to address carbon emissions like the climate neutral certification differ in its potential than a government-run carbon tax, for example? We're going to go over these questions and much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready... Take a deep breath, and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: My childhood was definitely very much tuned into nature, and I can remember a few, a few projects that I did in childhood. One of which was at one point I joined a program where you painted messages on storm drains, basically saying "Dump no waste drains to stream." And I'll, I'll never forget I was about, see, about ten or eleven years old, and some guy came out of his house and started yelling at me for painting, <laughs> painting this message on a storm drain. And you know, I had cones set up to keep cars from from running me over. But, if you look at any storm drain now, it's pretty much become part of part of the storm drain. like it's 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 now embossed in the storm drain. And I think we did that through school. But it just felt like there are things that people don't do that they should be doing more of. And I'm going to try to do my part to to convey that message
0: so today we're going to talk all about carbon markets and carbon offsetting. To preface our conversation, can you give us some background insights as to what exactly this carbon market is, when it became a thing, and how it's evolved in the past decade?
1: Sure. Carbon markets are not like stock markets in that when people think about the stock market, they think about Wall Street, and there's sort of one or two major stock markets. Carbon markets are more diffuse than that. Really, what carbon market does is it links up somebody who is willing to reduce a ton of carbon emissions or take a ton of carbon emissions from the atmosphere with somebody who wants to pay for someone to do that so there are basically there are buyers of carbon and sellers of carbon and it can be a little bit amorphous or or difficult to understand but it's it's really simply fundamentally paying somebody for the service of reducing a ton of carbon carbon markets can exist within countries they can exist within continents within regions within collaborations among states they can exist among companies that, they can exist in, in a variety of different places and over the last let's let's just call it 15 years we've seen carbon markets ebb and flow there was a big rise of carbon market carbon trading in the late aughts so 2006 7 8 then there was a bit of a decline and there's been an increase than the last couple of years, as people have realized, as a larger number of people have realized, the urgency of, of climate change. And the reason carbon markets and carbon trading is appealing to people is it, it links up people who, again, who who want to see emissions happen, but don't necessarily have an easy or cost-effective way of making them happen, with people who can produce easy and cost-effective Carbon reductions and and carbon reductions are really what we need to have more of if we're going to take on climate change in a meaningful way. So carbon trading and carbon markets can be a really useful tool in doing this.
0: Climate Neutral is an independent nonprofit organization working to accelerate our transition to a low-carbon world by putting a price on carbon emissions. That specific framing reminds me of the carbon tax that people have been fighting for to get passed and established in government for years. How, How does your nonprofit's work differ in its approach to put a price on carbon, and how did you solidify your reasons for believing that there's a need for a certification for this?
1: Well, I think you put your finger on it, which is that if there were an effective carbon tax, we wouldn't need to exist because there would be a price on carbon that companies pay for every ton of emissions that they're responsible for. And individuals would have carbon pricing or the climate impacts of their decisions integrated into what they pay for things. But we don't because only 20% of the world actually has a carbon price. So you have to go with an alternative. And what we have seen throughout history is that voluntary programs and particularly certification programs where there's a third party entity looking at what an organization is doing and judging their performance, that they can be a, a reasonably good Proxy for a strong policy, and if they're rolled out at scale, they can have an impact that is potentially on the same level as as what a, what a policy would do. Now, no no policy is perfect, and and no certification is perfect. We're trying to get people comfortable with the idea that it's important to start doing something because you know to, clearly there has been a total lack of government progress on climate. And even as we've seen two and a half decades of, of attempts to pass international policy completely fall flat and, and emissions continue to rise, we, we think it's time for bold and, and concerted action on the part of companies and consumers. And hopefully we can replicate what a good policy, long overdue policy would have or should have done for us many years ago.
0: Something that stands out to me is when people or companies offset their emissions voluntarily and pay that added cost for that, the money is going towards actual projects that are sequestering and drawing down carbon. Whereas flat-out carbon taxes, they put an added cost for companies. But in the case of the carbon fee and dividend approach, that dividend is just then redistributed to the citizens, which means that it's using the added cost itself as a deterrent for companies to emit more emissions, but in of itself, it may not support actual carbon sequestration. How do you see the greater impacts of these two approaches differ in the short and long term? And what are the pros and cons of a government-run program versus a market-based approach?
1: You're exactly right in that the difference between our program and a carbon tax is that the revenues from a carbon tax then percolate through a political process that has to decide how the money gets spent and in the case that you gave the money would get spent in the form of a dividend that's being returned to people i can give you other examples of of taxes that had been raised where the behavior they were trying to change, for example, making people more energy efficient or reducing emissions, that the revenues were actually spent in some some completely different way. Mm-hmm. One of the most egregious examples from my past was that money that had been budgeted to support energy efficiency programs was actually being repurposed to balance state budgets, which is is. Important and noble, but frankly, it misses the point. If you institute a policy that's supposed to achieve an outcome, then you think that the revenues would be targeted to, to that outcome. But the other point which you raised is that it does send a price signal to people that the behavior that's being taxed is now more expensive, and that cost reflects the cost to society of, of having that behavior. And so companies and individuals should, over time, change their decision-making to reflect that. That price, and that eventually the bad behavior will happen less frequently. I'm not going to provide sort of a, a macro assessment of whether a carbon tax can or cannot be effective. I, I firmly believe that there are lots of different ways to, to skin the cat. The benefit of a tax or a benefit of a tax is that if the government requires it, then everybody has to participate in it. And it's it's harder to to escape versus something that's voluntary. But as you, as you also pointed out, the system that that we've set up is a way of creating the price signal for companies because when you get certified, you actually have to pay a price for every ton of carbon emissions. So it's a price signal that can change behavior, but it's also a revenue generator for projects. So while I pay $5 or $10 a ton, that $5 goes directly into a carbon-reducing project. So, I guess to, to kind of sum up the the pros and cons. I mean, the the pro of a of a of a policy of a government tax is that it is more permanent. It's more punitive if you don't comply with it. It's probably a more surefire way of raising revenue than you know, raising revenue across a large you know, population or a large economy than something that's voluntary, which may take longer to to uptake. And probably goes through more scrutiny by economists to determine that it is a, a mechanism that's going to work for society. But it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't offer the immediate reduction uh, potential that we're going to provide. We're in a market-based way, we're channeling money directly into carbon-reducing projects. There's another sort of nuance, which I, since you asked a nuanced question, I'll take advantage of, of it and, and provide more, more nuance in the answer, which is that the amount of carbon that an entity, let's just say a company, is taxed on is very much a function of how the policy is designed. So whether I'm taxed on my direct emissions through the form of a tax on the fuel purchases like gasoline or diesel or natural gas, or taxed indirectly through the emissions that people that I buy goods and services from create and how much of that footprint I'm actually taxed on is a direct bearing on how much tax I actually pay. Similarly, for companies, whether their footprint is believed to be you know, just the emissions from their, say, a building or the emissions from their entire operations really determines how much they pay for an offsetting fee. And and with our system, what we've done is we've drawn a very large circle around The operations of a typical company all the way up into their supply chain so that I I, I would I'm fairly confident that compared to any tax that is levied on businesses or other types of policies that would put a cap on, on business footprints, the scope of what we're what we're pricing is a lot greater than what those businesses would actually face under a typical policy. And so the amount of money that is raised, the amount of, the amount of carbon that's that's assessed to fee on, the, the amount of money that's raised over time as could potentially be significantly larger because of the larger footprint. And that's all else equal. I mean, I guess there there are different approaches to setting the price, which we don't necessarily need to go into, but if a tax has a 10 times higher fee, but it's on a 10th of the footprint, then perhaps it's about, the, about equal. So there are a lot of different variables, but generally we feel like the mechanism that we've proposed and that we're, we're signing companies up for can be a reasonably good simulation of what a policy would look like.
0: Since the public awareness of climate change has increased in the past decade, and especially in the past years, various brands have come out saying that they are carbon neutral. How credible are statements like that? And what do companies actually mean when they say that?
1: That's a great question. You can look at, say, 10 carbon neutral announcements and find 10 different definitions of what carbon neutrality is. That's one of the reasons why we launched the platform and why we launched the Climate Neutral Certified label, because we think that there needs to be more standardization. We sort of talk about doing two things. One, lowering the barriers to achieving carbon neutrality by simplifying the, the footprinting process and by simplifying the methodology for going through it, while at the same time raising the expectations for carbon neutrality. So we do not assign or award a carbon neutral designation to companies that have only taken a look at a factory and a headquarters building purchased some renewable energy credits to neutralize the carbon emissions and then declared themselves carbon neutral. As I mentioned earlier, we are looking at emissions all the way up into the supply chain, trying to standardize that across all the businesses so that when the consumer sees the label, they know exactly what it means and they don't have to take the time to try to figure out, well, is it carbon neutral for their event or for their headquarters building or just their vehicle fleet, or perhaps it's something more than that. And if so, what is it? I do think a lot of the claims that have been made about carbon neutrality, frankly, are great that companies are doing them, but there's huge room for interpretation about what those definitions actually mean. And most of the claims about carbon neutrality that we've seen don't come anywhere close to the full footprint of the organization.
0: So if we were to come across brands that say that they're carbon neutral, what sorts of questions should we be asking to be able to distinguish if what they're saying has validity to it or that they have taken a more comprehensive approach as you guys do?
1: First question, I guess, would be what emissions are you counting when you declare carbon neutrality? Emissions from what sources and and what are the boundaries that you've drawn in that exercise? Second question is, how are you thinking about the interplay between carbon offsets and internal reductions and how do those two interact over time. And potentially it's worth asking what kinds of internal changes the company is making, this is related to the, to the reduction topic, but what, what kinds of internal changes the company is making to institute a price on carbon? and and how is it how is it shaping their decisions
0: and to give us a better understanding of the work that you're doing can you give us an example of a brand that you guys have worked with and what they've been able to achieve through working towards the climate neutral certification
1: one of my favorite examples is a company called Clean Canteen which is a very well known provider of drinking containers, drinking vessels, thermoses, and and coffee mugs, and so forth. And it's a company that's been around for about 20 years, and their sustainability history is long and deep, and they've looked at every part of their operations to make sure that they're doing as much as they possibly can while delivering high-quality products. Their views on carbon management and, and carbon offsetting changed dramatically over the course of the past year because they had begun to reach the bottom of of reach the limits of what they were able to do to reduce emissions within their own operations. And they had long said that all the reductions, all the impact on their footprint would come from internal investment, but essentially hit a wall on what they were able to do, but wanted to do more. And so they decided to embrace a strategy that included near-term carbon offsetting with longer term reduction strategies while they worked on the harder stuff that they hadn't already done. And they have told us that the impact of signing up to our platform has really focused people's attention internally on carbon as a liability and something that needs to be managed. They're incredibly thoughtful people, incredibly well-grounded in just all the core principles of sustainability. It is truly a core competency of their business. We just love the way they've used our platform as a, discipline, a source of discipline and the way that they're going to be incorporating it as a part of their brand identity. So that's one, one great example. I can give you another example of a company based here in Boston where I live uh, called Ministry of Supply, which has committed to our Certification as well. And they've had a long history of designing for the environment, incorporating recycled materials, thinking about their carbon footprint, purchasing carbon offsets. And so like Clean Canteen, they were already doing a tremendous amount, but the the need that they had was more about joining up with a larger movement and establishing that they were doing something in the same vein as what other companies were doing to become a bit, bit part of a community so they're a very sort of marketing forward organization they have they also got a very technical mindset in that their marketing presents information to customers that frankly I'm surprised that any marketing organization would do but they've they've made it incredibly effective and so they're using their marketing as a way of educating consumers about the environmental impacts of their of their purchases I think our our platform appealed to them because we do have a technical grounding while at the same time have invested a lot of time and effort in thinking about the the marketing appeal and the brand appeal of the logo. So that that's another sort of another case.
0: Sometimes I feel like people see carbon offsets as sort of a band-aid solution that gives companies permission to keep doing business as usual. In your Frequently Asked Questions section, it says that carbon offsetting is surprisingly not expensive. High-quality credits can be purchased for $5 per metric ton, which boils down to about $0.12 to offset a pair of shoes or $0.30 to offset a backpack. On the flip side of the affordability of carbon offsets, how do you go about ensuring that brands aren't just pursuing a climate neutral label to put off ways that they can and should be reducing their emissions or being more regenerative?
1: Well, one way is just the the simple requirement that companies disclose, identify and disclose a reduction action plan to get the certification. So you cannot simply buy offsets and get the certification. You have to have to spend time thinking about what your reduction plan can be. We are also realists about what reductions can achieve and in what timetable. Since our emission footprint that we look at is always last year's emission footprint, it's too late to reduce last year's emissions, right? Those emissions have already happened. And so we want companies to be accountable for those emissions while looking forward, building a plan out to reduce their emissions and then... And then act knowing that every, every ton of emissions that they, that they generate in the future are going to have a cost associated with them. You started off by referencing the, the $5 a ton number, which is, you know, it's a reality of today's carbon market is there just simply not enough demand. As I mentioned, governments have, have fallen way short of taking the required steps to institute policy to reduce emissions. And as a result of that, there are a lot of, of, of cheap emission reductions out there. We don't expect that to persist, but there's been research from folks like the Nature Conservancy that suggests that there's about three gigatons or three billion tons of emissions and just for reference global emissions worldwide every year are about 55 billion tons. So three billion tons is a pretty good chunk. But there's three billion tons of emissions out there that are available for under ten dollars a ton. So the point is it's it's like any supply curve where you know, things start off cheaply and then the more you consume of them they tend to get more expensive. And we are unfortunately at a point where demand is really low. And so when demand is low, price is low as demand increases, the price will go up and you'll start to work out the supply chain or work out the work out the supply curve and and get to a point where emissions are more expensive. But we believe that there's a long way to go. And frankly, it's it's just embarrassing that we're not taking advantage of more of these of these low hanging fruit opportunities.
0: Right. So to put that into context, it sounds like right now there are a lot of carbon sequestration, carbon drawdown and regenerative projects that are ready to go and they exist, but they just need the funding. To come. So that represents the supply side, right?
1: That's exactly right.
0: So they really just need the financial funding so that they can support their work to proceed.
1: Yeah, we need to drive more money into decarbonizing the world. I think that's that's really the fundamental principle. I mean, we are we're essentially trying to mobilize capital or we're trying to, you know, to fundraise indirectly for for carbon reducing projects. You know, one of our founders likes to say that solving climate change is not a technically impossible problem. It's just a problem that can't be fixed unless we have money that we pay for. The paying for solutions at scale is the only way we're going to to address it, but paying for solutions at scale is highly achievable because the scale is just simply not that great. Now, you talked about the data we have on the website about the cost per product. The reality is that it, there is not a whole lot of carbon. There is carbon in, in everything that, that we make, but there's not a whole lot of carbon to the extent that it's you know really expensive to address. What I mean is that when you manufacture any any physical good, chances are somewhere in the supply chain, there are carbon emissions that are being generated. But if you net that out to an individual product, the amount of carbon that you actually have to pay for to, to clean up the, the the footprint of that product is a tiny, tiny fraction of the, of the retail price of that product.
0: By a similar token to what we were talking about earlier, for various reasons, our Western dominant modern society has become very consumptive. So I guess my question is what if this climate neutral status becomes a justification for people to continue our culture of overconsumption and disposability. So how do we navigate that and do you think this climate neutrality status is able to also curb or influence consumption as well?
1: It's a great question. The the presumption and the hope that we have is that we're not going to increase the market size for any of the products that we're certifying. We're going to simply allow certified products to capture more market share. One of the examples that I love is the example of of mattresses. Early in our after our founding, one of our member companies, Avocado Mattress joined us and shortly after they joined us, there were a couple other mattress companies that joined us as well. Now people because there are now Certified mattresses on the market. People are not going to buy more mattresses. They're just going to buy different mattresses. If the label can give those companies an edge in the marketplace over the established players, then solely start to change the entire category. You raise the expectations that consumers have for what their mattress providers are going to be doing about about climate change, and rather than increasing consumerism, you're, you're simply shifting it toward these products that have a lower carbon profile. So that's, I think, the general theory that we have, and that the label itself is not going to cause people to buy more mattresses or more water bottles or more shirts. It's just simply going to shift buying behavior, and better inform consumers so that when they do spend money on things, it will be directed to to products that have have taken responsibility for their climate impacts. Now, whether we can actually encourage consumers to purchase less is something we have not figured out yet. I would love to think that by making people more aware of the carbon impacts of their purchases and, and the goods and services that they procure, that they will start to think more about the connection between carbon and, and and their lives. And frankly, I think that connection is absolutely, it's just non-existent right now. When you ask a room full of people how what their carbon footprint is, nobody knows. And nobody knows the impact of one decision versus another. So by drawing this connection between carbon emissions and consumerism, we think there's a huge opportunity to educate people that every purchase that they make Has a carbon implication, and that that will start to start to change how they think about consumerism, because you're right. I mean, if if people if people stopped buying things tomorrow, carbon emissions would go down significantly. Unfortunately, that would also have terrible economic effects, and so we've got to balance the need to maintain healthy economies with the need to maintain a healthy environment.
0: I've heard that oftentimes with certifications that denote social and environmental stewardship and well-being, sometimes small businesses or independent makers may be doing things responsibly and with high standards for themselves, but just don't have the budget to cover the cost of the third-party auditing and certification process. And so they may be doing things consciously and regeneratively, but just not have a product label full of different certifications. So how does Climate Neutral help level out the playing field so that companies, no matter their size or revenue, can take part, prove their social responsibility in this area and earn recognition?
1: Yeah, that's uh, a classic criticism of the organic food market, because the process of getting certified organic is very onerous. And there are many small farms, family-owned farms, that don't go through the organic certification process because it's just too expensive. The climate neutral certified process is really different from those longer, more technical certifications in that we don't actually ask companies to do very much. And that's by design. We're trying to make it simple for them and simple for their consumers to understand what they what they went through. We do have a process that is set out specifically for small businesses that allows them to estimate their carbon footprint in a credible but simplified way and we provide some references about what small businesses can do to reduce their emission footprint. And then completing the transaction for offsetting, we aggregate demand across small businesses and we make the purchase on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is very turnkey and designed to be something that doesn't bog down companies in a year or two of certification where they have to pay consultants lots of money to go through it. But it focuses the money that's being spent on the actual carbon-reducing projects. I do want to respond to something else that you asked there, which is the fact that we are the, the label becomes a, a symbol or a badge of, of corporate responsibility. Uh, but you also said in this area, and, and an important thing for for us to note is that our label does not say that companies are doing everything perfectly when it comes to sustainability. Sustainability is incredibly broad and has many different things wrapped up into it. So we're not looking at worker health and safety, but that's incredibly important. We're not looking at toxic materials, but that's incredibly important. So we're simply saying that nobody out there does a great job of diagnosing how a company is performing from a climate perspective. And there's a lot the companies can be doing that they're not doing today. It's ridiculous at a time when we face the incredible challenge of, of, of global climate change that that this isn't being taken on in a more direct and immediate manner. And so we don't profess to be a all-encompassing sustainability label. We simply say to companies that if you are talking about sustainability, this is a minimum standard that you must meet because climate is a significant enough problem, and most companies are not doing anything about it.
0: Finally, with this carbon offset framework, what is our role as individuals and how can we have the most positive impact?
1: Keeping up hope is is one is one important thing for people to do. There's a lot of bleak information out there right now. And the important thing for, for individuals is is to think about think about the fact that, that you can do things without being overwhelmed by the problem. We are all responsible for decisions in our day-to-day lives that can have an impact. And I think if individuals who believe in the seriousness of the problem really stick to their stick to their principles, those decisions that they make, whether it's going out to, to buy a new car or setting the thermostat in their house or choosing how many new pieces of clo- clothing to buy each year, every little bit will count and you got to start somewhere. And the importance of starting somewhere cannot be understated.
2: Would it be part of the deal? Cause she's sweet as sugar But wait until it rains She can turn very bitter flame Spitting words in the atmosphere They breathe in monochrome White-colored criminals Will reap just what they sow And now the fields are barren Where do we go? From here, from here, from here, from
0: here. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: Recently, I spoke with a woman named Allie Morrissey, who a year ago started a a blog called Create Change and her personal story is fascinating because she never really thought about climate change but one day after reading a bunch of the IPCC report information uh, one day decided that this is a a real problem that she needed to to start thinking about so what she's done is gone out and interviewed a bunch of people who are working on on the problem of climate change and I really enjoyed the conversation I had with her and and the blog that she writes I also this I'll just add one more which is kind of a strange one but I, these days, look for social media feeds of politicians that have positive things to say, because I think there's such an absence of positivity in in politics right now that looking at Barack Obama's Twitter feed is is sometimes heartening to me because there, there are people like him who are still out there, even though they don't dominate the political dialogue today. I think there's a way that we can get back to that.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: I... Tell myself that I'm not so wedded to what we're doing that if it fails, I will give up all hope. But I think that if someone has a better idea than what we're doing, I, I want to hear it and I want to be part of it and, and I want to work on it. So in other words, the, the the thing that we're working on is bigger than any individual who's working on it. And that makes me feel like, It's much more about the problem we're trying to solve than the ego and the immediate sort of personal involvement.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: I decided about two years ago to give up most meat by going mostly vegetarian. And by mostly, I mean, I probably eat about two to four ounces of meat per week. It's fantastic for health. It's fantastic for the environment. It's a win-win.
0: What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet?
1: I show up for work every day. <laughs> and uh, that's as much as I can, I can do with my, my life right now. I mean, I think the, the project building climate neutral has the potential to leave a massive, massive impact on, on how people pay for climate change, climate change solutions. And that's where I'm focusing 110% of my time.
0: And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: Never in history have people understood better their connection with the natural world. I think over generations past, people have had adversarial relationships. They have misunderstood the natural world. But today, I think more than ever, individuals are able to connect with the natural world, either vicariously through through things like Instagram or directly by going out and and, and experiencing it. Businesses also understand better than ever the economic dependence that they have on the natural world and never have before have people individuals and businesses better understood the threat due to climate change and so you've got to understand you've got to feel that connection in order to to start working and moving toward a solution
0: Green Dreamer to learn more and stay updated on Austin's work at Climate Neutral, you can head to www.climateneutral.org. And you can also follow them on Instagram at B climate Neutral and on Twitter at Climate Neutral. All of this will be linked in the show notes as well that you can find at GreenDreamer.com. Austin, thank you so much for joining us today and for everything that you're doing to help decarbonize our economy and our world. If our listener would like to get involved with the work that you're doing or support Climate neutral, whether they are a business owner or not, what calls to action do you have for them?
1: We certainly encourage people to reach out to their favorite brands and tell them that they need to be doing more on climate and they can engage with them through social media. Uh, They can go on our website. We have a a tweet generator that allows you to tweet at your favorite brand and say, hey, brand, be, be climate neutral. We also encourage people to look for Products out there that do have the climate neutral label and purchase them instead of alternatives and starting in January of 2020 there will be products uh, on store shelves with with the label. so we kind of we kind of look at it as two ways uh, be climate neutral and, and buy climate neutral so, so encourage companies to be climate neutral and then as you're a consumer uh, go out and, and buy climate neutral as opposed to the alternative.
0: And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: I guess, in in a word, connect. I I think with with where we are in in the evolution of social media, there's an amazing number of opportunities to connect with people who are just as concerned as you are and just as passionate about finding solutions. Whatever that network might be, tap into it, turn grassroots connections into more coordinated action. And with that, I think we will be able to build a groundswell of support and, and, and make more progress on difficult issues than we would as individuals. So, yeah, join arms and, and connect and be part of the network and the global community.
2: They're mining for gold, but all I see is still so cleverly concealed. Cause all that glitters isn't always gold Where's the credit in what they sold? Glide in the silver line in rivers far away It streams in the youth as they line up by the gates And now the fields are barren Where do we go? Where do we go? Still, could it be part of the deal?